Okay, guys, bang, bang, bang. This is Alternative Data News. I'm Aubrey Hodges. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of Alternative Data News. I'm super excited to um, speak to my guest today. Uh, he's got an incredible background. Uh, he spent a number of years on the buy side, formerly of Jericho Capital, also then spearheaded the efforts at Tiger Management um, on the investment side, later founded Adaptive Management, and recently started and founded Nomad Data which just raised $1.6 million. Brad Schneider, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Aubrey. Uh, looking forward to our discussion. Absolutely. So, so let's just kind of get the, uh, the elephant out of the room um, and to kind of discuss things um, right away. You just raised a, a pretty healthy amount of money, $1.6 million. I'm curious to know, as a CEO of a company, are you going to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet? <laughs> What do you mean going to? I mean, it's pretty much all in there. That's uh, that's our business model. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, if we had enough excess capital, it's something to consider. But right now I'm planning to put that money into people, put it into marketing, advertising, and some, some tech spend. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, one of the things I, I wanted to do, because you've got a really great background, both coming from the buy side and then spearheading several companies, I wanted to spend some time sort of diving into your background, help people get a glance for some of the work that you were doing both at Jericho and Tiger, and then what contributed to you leaving the buy side? What was the decision-making process to leave the buy side at, at a time, what was this, 2013, 15? So, so markets were pretty healthy. It was a pretty fluent market uh, to then go start adaptive. I'm, I'm curious about that process, um, you know, where you were in your professional career and kind of what, what led you down that path? Yeah, I think it's important to talk a little bit more about my background. I, I actually started out in technology. I didn't start out in finance. I, I was a startup guy right out of MIT, did that for a couple of years. And it was there that I, I got interested in finance and ended up moving uh, back in 04 uh, into, a, into a hedge fund role um, coming from an operating role. And, you know, I was really doing sales, I was doing software development, but broadly had an interest in what was going on in the technology markets. And when I was selling, I actually started to go through 10Ks and 10Qs to understand the people I was selling to. Uh, and they were mostly technology companies. And I got more and more interested in broadly what was going on. That was a very exciting time in technology when companies like Oracle and Microsoft and Google were really uh, starting to explode. And, uh, you know, then spent roughly 12 years investing in primarily technology businesses. And, and so, you know, I, I kind of merged that data background with my, my interest in investing and carved out a, a somewhat unique career path where data was, was more and more a part of my investment process as the time went by. And then, you know, fast forward to 2015, I'd been on the buy side for, you know, about 12 years at this point. Uh, and for those of you that have never worked in a buy side role, you know, especially a technology investing role, it's, a, it's an extremely stressful role. Uh, you know, you're covering dozens, if not hundreds of stocks going in all sorts of directions every day. 
uh, it's a very high stress role and, and a lot of the, the success of the outcome is, is out of your control. Uh, you know, you don't control what the Fed does. Obviously, you can take guesses at what they will do, uh, but right. there's a lot of exogenous variables. And, you know, to me, that was a time when the use of data was starting to come onto people's radars. And most people really don't know how to approach it. How do I merge this, this you know, field of data that I know nothing about with investing, which is extremely different, at least it was back in 2015. And, and that's sort of where I saw the opportunity. So, you know, I was somewhat looking forward to a break from that pace of buy side life for a bit, uh, but also wanted to be able to focus on one thing. I spent 12 years focused on, I think literally it was two or 300 companies where I, I could tell you every reason that the stock chart went up or down every day going back years. And I wanted to focus on building something, you know, a little bit longer term. And that's how I, I got back into, into technology after quite a, quite a while of a break. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it's got to be rewarding to, to just have your efforts sort of focused on one endeavor versus trying to cover 50 to 200 complex businesses all at one time. So I, I can imagine having a laser beam focus now is, uh, is only been, has only been helpful. Yeah, it's definitely helpful. I, I certainly miss the buy side. It's it's a very fun role. And I've always said it's it's sort of like having a, uh, if the news was a place, you know, as a buy side analyst, you've got a front row seat to it. You know, every single thing that's going on in the economy with the companies you cover, with the people that work there, yeah. you are, are so close, you know, to, to what's happening and, and you know all these people intimately. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're constantly context shifting. You know, it's very hard to do deep research on anything when you're covering that many companies. Um, and so it's fun to work on, on one problem and, and focus day in and day out on, on moving the ball forward and, and building something small to something bigger. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. You know, it's, it's interesting that you, um, that you say that. Uh, probably was going to leave it for later in the conversation, but why not just jump into it now? You know, I tend to think that some of the challenges across alternative data tend to be some of the things you just outlined, primarily around, you know, vendors not being able to move the ball forward, um, you know, in a pretty timely manner with, with, uh, with managers or investors. And that's primarily due, in my belief, because the ball gets slapped around so often and, and you constantly have to pivot the business that you're in and strategy. And if you're an analyst and your PM comes to you and says, halt everything, we need to focus our attentions on this new vertical, these specific new names. I think that's some of the reason why you see a tremendous amount of backlog um, you know, across our industry. What are your thoughts on that? There's a lot to unpack there, but certainly one, one of the biggest issues with data is that data isn't like a hammer, right? A hammer hammers nails. You know, you know what a hammer is, you know who needs a hammer, you know when they need a hammer. Data, a lot of these data sets that are out there, they can be used to do so many different things. They're, they're the full toolbox. And that makes it complicated in so many different areas. One is selling. So you go into a customer, you don't know exactly what version of that data they want, how they want it aggregated, what problems they want to use it to solve. And, and in many cases, they don't even know. So you're selling this somewhat amorphous entity to them and it makes the sale just difficult, right? You're asking the customer to imagine a lot and to be very creative and to do a lot of work. You know, if you sell CRM software, you know exactly who needs CRM software, you know what they're gonna do with CRM software. 
And with data, you just don't have that. So that's been an enormous friction point. And then, you know, obviously just the lack of standardization then creates complexity around things like testing and the lack of knowledge in these organizations of using data creates a lot of apprehension because they don't know how to weigh the value of the data. Uh, you know, and I, I like to use a lot of analogies from the buy side, you know, even though people talk about alternative data as being something new, alternative data is really just another form of research. And we did all sorts of research on the buy side. I would do channel checks. I would, you know, test out products. And each of these things is a stream of data and you have to understand sort of how to weigh it, right? If I call, you know, a reseller of a particular piece of hardware, let's say I'm calling Cisco router resellers in the Northeast, they're telling me one thing, but that that's biased by what region of the country they're in, what country I, I chose to call someone in, you know, as well as how is that reseller's position in the market? Maybe they're gaining share or losing share. So there's a lot of bias in any of those sort of data streams. And the same is true of alternative data. The problem with alternative data is it's very new and, and people haven't had the experience of using it and the successes and the failures. So they don't know how to think about it yet. And that's unfortunately something that's just going to take time. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, but I think this is a pretty good segue to, to kind of um, move over and to talk about why you started Nomad Data and, you know, what are some of the, the problems um, that you're aiming to solve for um, at the moment with, uh, with the new venture? Can you, can you kind of just talk through, um, you know, how, the, how Nomad Data came to be and how you were thinking about problem solving for the industry and where do things stand? Yeah, so, so Nomad Data's goal is to make it much easier for people to connect with data. Uh, this is a problem that I, I've seen going all the way back to my the beginning of my journey with data. This is back probably 2005. I always felt there needed to be a search engine for data. It needed to be really easy to go from the thing that I care about to, oh, here are the three data providers whose data is relevant to that. And it sounds simple. It sounds like you should be able to go to Google or a data marketplace and search for those things and find them. Unfortunately, Google's a lot different. I'm sorry, data is a lot different than, than the web. You know, when you think about the web, the thing that you're searching for is usually listed on a web page. You know, I'm searching for travel information. There's a bunch of websites that talk about travel. You know, when it comes to data, people want to answer very specific questions. And again, going back to what I, I talked about earlier, the data can be used for so many different things that nowhere is it listed the million things you can do with these data sets. You know, for example, you know, we were using consumer credit bureau data to figure out the number of people moving away from Puerto Rico. That is not listed as a use case on that company's website, on that data products website, nor is any question that the data answers. So you lack the basic information, you know, in which you wanted to search to find what you were looking for. So really what we're trying to do is just make it a lot easier. Say, you don't need to know anything about this world of data. You just need to understand the problem you're trying to solve. You type it into our platform, you basically explain it, it gets anonymously routed to the providers that might have it. And then they basically come in and, and, and share with you whether or not their data is a good fit and, and how. And, and it's anonymous on, on both sides. Um, uh, and that allows people to comfortably put these uh, search queries out there and get very targeted responses. So something that used to take data buyers, you know, maybe months to find the right data, it, they literally spend three minutes on the platform. Wow, that's um, that's incredible. That's a, a 
a pretty great use of technology to help uh, make things much more efficient, robust, and uh, and searchable. Um, can you can you kind of talk about you know the the the, the types of uh, customers that you know are leveraging the platform and what does that ratio right now look like between funds versus corporates and, and how do you see that potentially playing out or evolving over time? So we're, we're trying to cap the percentage of financial services to about 50%. And I'd say that's where it is roughly. So within that it's hedge funds, private equity funds, sovereign wealth funds, family offices. Outside of there, we're working with consultants, we're working with corporates, we're working with uh, software companies that need data to power their products or to power their own internal analytics and decision-making. I think long-term, uh, you know, financial services is certainly an early mover, but really the market for data is so much bigger outside of financial services. Most of the alternative data, at least in my mind, is really this industry-specific data, right? If you go to the, the television industry, you go to the advertising industry, there's ecosystems of providers that serve those industries. And really it's the same kind of data that we refer to as alternative data, but they never spent any time selling into financial services. Uh, because, you know, again, going back to what we talked about before, the data can be used in so many ways, you end up choosing one thing that you think it's best for, and that's how you go to market with it. And that allows you to have a more productive conversation. But on the flip side, it, it cuts out, unfortunately, a large percentage of the market because of all the other use cases your data can be used for. And that's a really interesting part about the Nomad platform is we see a lot of cross-pollination. So we see you know, for example, we, we work with a couple of data providers and all they sell is, is voter, uh, voter files, voter registration data, demographics on voters. And we've ended up matching that data to searches in completely different industries like insurance, for example. Um, AI software ended up connecting with voter file data. Uh, this is not something they've ever sold the data as, but when you see the use case, it's such an obvious fit. But again, the market today isn't structured to allow for that. And so that's what we're trying to do is unlock that and ultimately provide one single place for, for buyers to come. And that's been a real problem in the data space is that the demand is so fragmented in so many places. There, there's no central place to go to to find it. And that creates a lot of friction for the sellers because they don't know where to go. They have to market everywhere. They have to sell to everyone. If you gave them a single channel uh, through which they got leads, the, the, the sales process would be so much more efficient. And that's already what we're seeing with nearly, I think 75% of our clients have already purchased data that they found through the platform. Wow, that's, a, uh, that's an incredible metric, 75%. Um, and and do, you, you know, do you think that, you know, as you mentioned, you know, corporates having a, a larger you know, usage case you know, for, for the data, so where do you see you know, corporate adoption at this moment? Like if this was a baseball game, what inning would we be in with regards to corporate adoption of alternative data? We're, we're in the first inning for sure. <laughs> Again, it goes back to the problem of most people don't really understand that this market exists. They, they've heard about data, but it's this esoteric thing. They don't know that that data is at all relevant to the things they're doing on a, on a daily basis. And so, you know, I view it as part of our mission is to increase awareness, create something that makes that connection a lot simpler and, and help grow the market. And we've seen examples of that, you know, over and over and again, uh, certainly services like Google, 
played an instrumental role in growing the internet, right? You unlock the long tail of websites. Before that, a, a person could only remember a handful of sites. With a search engine, there can be millions and millions of websites. And I think the same is true of data. If you provide a much simpler way for people to translate their use cases into searches and you make it very easy for them to find that long tail, you're gonna see more and more data providers come to market but you're also gonna see them being more successful. You're gonna see their sales costs being a lot lower. And so all of these things are required to have a functioning market. And I don't think we're there yet. Interesting. I wanna, I wanna, flip, um, I wanna flip the scenario a bit, you know, given that you, you've got a tech background, you've, you've spent a number of years on the street working across identifying um, you know, technology companies that have the ability to scale and, and, and leverage um, different usage cases. I want you to put your your investor hat back on. You know, if you were in today's market, um, which is seems very choppy to navigate, you know, given some of the some of the things that have occurred. You know, with some of these uh, Mimi trades. Um, but if you were if you were putting your investor hat back on, you were managing two to three billion dollars. You know, where do you see opportunities in the market? And then how would you be leveraging data to fill those gaps? Yeah, I think the, the big opportunity is still on, on the longer term investments. Most of alternative data I've seen used has really been about calling quarters, has been about understanding the short term. It requires, I think, a, a somewhat different skill set and, and requires more nuance to interrogate this data to tell you about the long term. But once you understand how that process works, you can really learn such a rich amount about a company by looking at this data. You can understand, you know, maybe what's happening in a certain region and as they grow in other regions, what will a company look like in the long term? You can understand share shifts, you know, in different products and add those up over time to understand really what will happen, you know, one, two, three, five years down the road. And I don't see most people doing that. And that I think somewhat is a symptom of you know, I don't want to blame it just on the buy side, but incentive structures tend to be fairly short term, right? You know, in a, in a buy side role, you know, you're, you're lucky to be graded quarterly. You know, sometimes you're graded literally on every earnings call. If something blows up and you are wrong, uh, you, you get yelled at, you get reprimanded, you know, your job is at risk. And so that creates a very short term mentality. And a, a lot of businesses, not just hedge funds are like that, where the grading period is quarterly um, and you, you're under this immense pressure to produce, produce results really quickly. And so that forces people to use data to think about the short term. You know, if you're set up as a fund to be able to really invest in the long term, and I know everybody says that, but very few firms from an, uh, from an incentive standpoint are set up that way, then that, I think that's where the opportunity is because most people unfortunately don't have the luxury of really thinking about the, the long term. Right. And, and so if we were, if we're thinking about the long term, it would seem as if folks across the private equity space would have a slightly bit more of, a, of an advantage to a certain extent than folks on the buy side working at funds looking to try to understand an earnings call and getting within 100 basis points of, of a printed number. How do, you, how do you think about private equity and what have you seen with respect to you know, interest, demand, and, you know, different usage cases? Interest is definitely high. I think with all of these roles, though, there's always a concern that 
the thing that I'm good at, you know, will be disintermediated by this new approach by data in, in this instance. So, I mean, in terms of where we've seen private equity have the most traction, you know, one is really around the due diligence and, and due diligence for private equity is interesting because these deals tend to come up. They tend to be in a hurry. There's other bidders. So you have a very short window. And so I think our product actually fits really well in a private equity because timing is everything. The, the query comes up. You need to answer that literally in a few days. They need to be testing the data by the end of the week, and they need to be buying and, and using it to make a decision very quickly. So I, I think that uh, creates some challenges. Uh, one is that most data providers are not set up to sell in that way. They want to sell you know, all you can eat, you know, multi-quarter, multi-year subscriptions. And that doesn't work for somebody that's doing that kind of ad hoc research, even though they may be doing that type of research over and over and over again. They don't know that they need one type of data versus another. Uh, they may need to sort of dip in and dip out. And I think as you get a more mature market, you know, there will be models that, that allow for that to happen. You know, it's a, it's a little bit different, you know, on the longer term basis, because you don't, you don't get the opportunity to sell a holding, you know, with the frequency that you do at a hedge fund, right? I can find out something's going in the wrong direction and, and get it off my books uh, fairly quickly, or you know, even in a quarter or so. Whereas private equity, you're you're somewhat wed to the business, um, so it's just a, a slightly different use case. But I think on sourcing, there's also an opportunity. We, we've seen a lot of people be interested in that, but I, I've actually seen less people doing it. The area that I'm most excited about in private equity is, is actually using data to help the portfolio companies. And that we've had a lot of, a lot of conversations with, where whether sure. it's cross-pollinating from other companies in the portfolio, not necessarily sharing the, the data in its rawest format, but giving other companies indications of, of weakness or, or strength in different parts of the economy. Yeah, I can absolutely see um, see how that fits the, fits the mold. You know, there was... A, was a company that was acquired and you probably know them well seven park that kind of um got acquired for that exact purpose as well right which is to help sort of provide value to some of the portfolio companies within the uh the pe firm so um you know as as we kind of look at the industry and kind of look at the industry broadly you know how do you see you know alternative data um, you know, shaping over the next two to three years. I think that's a, a, a pretty good time frame to, to kind of consider anything longer than that, you know, might be slightly challenging. But what do you think, you know, is on the horizon over the next two to three years? And what kind of excites you about how the, the, the industry or the market is developing? The one tailwind the industry has is, is just the enormous interest. I think people get that there's something here I think the challenge remains, well, how do we sort of get at it? And, and over the next three years, I see us playing a pretty instrumental role in unlocking one of the areas of friction, which is bringing in a lot more buyers into the alternative data market, educating them that alternative data is even a thing that exists and is relevant to what they do. So I think we can move a lot of people into the top of the funnel, get a lot more conversations going. And you know, based on the transaction rates that we've seen so far, I think we can start to see increased sales among these data providers. And I think once you get that flywheel moving uh, and these companies can be more and more efficient, I think you're gonna see a lot of innovation around pricing models. Uh, I think you're gonna see uh, some price compression, but, but in a good way where they're actually making more money selling at lower prices, which further fuels the flywheel of getting more and more people into this industry. You know, I, I think those are two really big challenges. And then I think as, 
you know, players get more scale, like, you know, the Amazons and the snowflakes, and you make that testing process and that uh, data evaluation and, you know, actual pipelining process a lot easier, you're going to see just growth upon growth upon growth. And you're going to see a market that's significantly bigger than it is today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think um, I think there's you know, opportunities. There's a number of companies, publicly traded companies, obviously leading that way. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what types of acquisitions come about, what types of strategic partnerships, you know, uh, which kind of leads me into my, my next question, which is you know, how do you think consolidation actually benefits the industry? There's a tremendous amount of, of vendors, um, one would probably say more data vendors than actually net buyers in the market at the moment. You know, how do you think consolidation benefits the energy and how do you think some companies can create synergies by aligning their products to maybe create better signals? Yeah, I mean, consolidation is a double-edged sword. I mean, typically you see consolidation in industries that, that lack growth and, and you need people that, that can sell more of a portfolio approach. They get the customer in the door with one product, they sell another product and another product. Yeah, and that's been, I think, a symptom of the fact that this industry hasn't grown as quickly as some would hope uh, because there's been a lot of friction in getting new buyers in. I actually think that once this becomes much broader, people understand how to get into the market, we make it a lot simpler for people to find this data. I see you'll, I think you'll see a, a reduction, I think in overall consolidation, I think you'll see an explosion of, of new vendors coming to market, but certainly within verticals, you know, there'll, there'll probably still be a lot of consolidation because of that, right? The number of hedge funds is not growing substantially. Certainly the amount of hedge fund dollars going towards data is not changing meaningfully enough to sort of counter that, um, that consolidation. Uh, but in other industries, you know, talk about software and AI, the, the need for data is exploding and the processing power is increasing at an exponential rate. And so in those areas, I'd be really surprised if you see much consolidation. And so I think it, it just depends on how, how quickly the, the market grows. Interesting. Um, I, I can only imagine that across your networks, both on the data side, on the buy side, you've got a, a pretty... Uh, expansive network of, uh, of people that you talk to, know, are familiar with, are helping problem solve on both sides of the table. Who do you normally talk to, you know, in the industry? Who are some folks that you normally sort of liaison or speak with frequently um, about the industry across alternative data? And, and what are you guys typically speaking about and trying to problem solve for? I can imagine there are numerous amounts of, you know, conversations behind the scenes. And I'm you know, curious to know who, who are some of the folks that, uh, that you tend to, to lean on in your network. I've worked at these sort of industry agnostic companies for, for the last five years or so of my career. So it's, it's an interesting seat. So it's not, it's not something where I have to go out and sort of seek advice from individual people, you know, on a daily basis, I'm interacting with so many people, so many buyers that we're onboarding onto the platform or we're having discussions about their experiences and data. You know, I think today I have calls with five different data providers. And so it's just this constant stream of discussions, um, you know, and I'll reach out to people depending if there's a specific industry related question, you know, like we got some searches yesterday where 
you know, it was a little unclear if certain vendors were selling into different markets and, and will reach out. But, you know, I've actually found that the, the, the Zoom alternative data group that we've been doing over the last couple of months has been a really valuable forum uh, with a lot of uh, CEOs, sales folks, data buyers in, in one place. And I think more of a candid conversation about what's going on in the industry. So that's been a real, a real resource for me. Right. And, and if you were, you know, knowing what you know now about the industry um, and taking your experience as well, if you were doing things all over again, you were a, a data vendor looking to move into the marketplace, where would you be focused? What type of offering would you be, you know, considering and, and, and how do you, how do you tell your story? Um, to to better you know help build different usage cases and help managers or corporates find utility and in, in that type of offering. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think the best approach is is one of of laser focus. So even though you have a data set that might be able to be used for a million different things, you know, like starting a new business, you have to figure out sort of where the maximum product market fit is and the largest market size. And you have to just be laser focused on one use case. And you have to just pound and pound and pound, make a lot of noise about how customers are using the data to solve that problem and why that problem is so important to be solved and go after that one type of customer. I've, I've just seen the, the data companies that do that, the, the vertical focused, the specific problem focused data vendors be so much more successful than ones that are running around selling all this data that can be used in all these amazing ways. I think we help change that over time where, you know, it's literally just about having quality, unique data and you're gonna get a lot of a lot of leads to the platform. But today, you know, it's really about that focus. You know, if I look at the the Nielsen's, the comm scores, these are companies that really focused on one thing. You know, initially they focused on one industry. And then once you get that scale, then you can go after other industries, other use cases, but you, you have to solve that one problem initially. You have to get scale without you know, spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on, on sales and marketing. And then you can expand, you know, as opposed to what I'm seeing a lot of early vendors do is say, well, you can use the data for this, you can use it for that, you know, we're really good here. It's just confusing to the customers. You, you have to hit them over the head with the same message over and over again. Uh, so they know that XYZ vendor is the person to solve this problem as opposed to, oh, they have interesting data. We might be able to use it here. We might be able to use it there. That That's just a challenging sales process. It's challenging for both sides. I would agree. I would agree. Um, I, I want to dive into your own personal experience as, um, as an entrepreneur and as a, as a co-founder. Um, you recently, you know, came off of a very successful raise. Can you can you kind of talk about what that experience was like, and and ultimately who who participated in the round? Yeah, absolutely. You know, fundraising, you know, is always a fun process. You get to meet a lot of people, some of which will agree with your view of the world, and and many will not. You know, I think a lot of it just comes down to persistence and believing yourself in the mission. You know. Again, this goes back to data, right? You're going to get data that tells you a lot of different things and you really have to learn how to weigh those different opinions. You know, and I'd say that the biggest challenge that I had was just skepticism around data. You know, there's a lot of different views on the data market, but, but one of the biggest challenges from raising a venture round is that 
really people are looking at the business. They're trying to imagine, well, you know, how much revenue could this company do in five, 10 years? And what sort of multiple can we put on that revenue? And where can we expect to sell it for? Um, and there has just been a lack of public companies in the alternative data space, in the data space in general. Uh, a lot of the companies that are public are really low growth companies that have been around for decades. And so if you look at those multiples, which I don't think are a fair comparison, you know, it doesn't paint a great picture for, for where their exit would be. You know, now we're starting to get into, into a world where we do have some public comps, similar web going public at a pretty healthy valuation. I mean, certainly way above, you know, what SaaS high growth multiples used to be, you know, even a couple of years ago, you get companies like Weijo that just uh, went public through a SPAC. And I, I think that starts to help anchor the industry, you know, and, and just looking at the pipeline, it seems like we're going to see more and more of that going forward. And that I think will make the process a lot simpler where people have examples to look to. They have public numbers that they can analyze about how quickly that they're growing. Uh, and, and I think that's gonna make it a lot easier for companies in this space to raise money. And as a result, I think we're gonna see a lot more innovation and a lot more excitement. Sounds like there could be a pretty good usage case for a data set out there for something like that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I wanna, uh... I want to shift gears. This has been a great conversation. Um, I want to talk a little shop. You know, outside of uh, outside of launching Nomad Data, you know, what did you do during the pandemic to uh, to keep sane? Everyone's got their own their own stories of uh, how they managed to uh, to get through get through these uh, interesting times. Yeah, it was a it was a tough one, I think, for all of us. Personally, it was interesting because I had sold my previous business about two weeks before COVID really hit. So I, I had taken some time off and was traveling and uh, the world started to shut down in, in mid-March. And so I ended up coming back to New York when New York was already in lockdown. So I hadn't seen anybody in almost a month and you know the, the prospects of seeing anybody weren't good. And so you know, I, I, started, uh, I started taking a lot of online classes to keep sane. You know, I, I really didn't know what my next step was gonna be. I started taking, you know, all sorts of things. I, I took uh, mixology. I spent months and months learning how to make different cocktails and syrups and infusing liquors. And that was sort of fun, you know, exercising the other part of my, my engineer brain. And then I also spent a lot of time taking engineering classes online, you know, with things like Udacity and Udemy, Coursera. Yeah. There's so many amazing platforms now to learn about things and studied everything from you know, how to build node apps to react to, you know, full stack engineering, basically getting up to speed on the latest and greatest. I took data science classes. And a lot of that played a direct role in, in Nomad. So I actually built the first version of the platform um, in React, which is something I had never used before and was extremely happy with it. So a lot of good came out of it um, from an intellectual uh, viewpoint, but, you know, personally, it was, it was not a fun time. Sure, sure. And, and now that we, you know, are, are at a place, you know, where there's a healthy amount of people vaccinated, you know, I'm sure, um, like everyone else, you're itching to to get out, get some contact, do some traveling. Um, what's a what's a favorite city of yours outside of the U.S. that you would love to visit or have been to and could see yourself going back to multiple times a year? Multiple times a year. Uh... Well, I should be so lucky to be able to take that much time, but I will say, 
I've been spending a decent bit of time in Istanbul. Uh, I actually spent a month there last summer. I, I built a lot of the, the platform while I was there renting an apartment. Uh, other places, I would love to get back to Iceland. I'm a huge fan. I've been there four times. I think it's just an amazing place. And it is the sort of place you can go a few times a year from New York. For great record, food, great nature, record, good nightlife. Just a, just a wonderful place. Yeah, um, Reykjavik kind of uh, comes to mind. I mean, I haven't personally been. It's been a, it's been a place where I've been sort of itching to to go to for a number, number of years myself. And it is a, a fairly easy flight from New York to kind of get there. Um, Istanbul, you know, I, I hear a lot of great things about uh, about that city. You know, what uh, what uh, what made you choose Istanbul? You know, from New York, and you know, just curious about that. Yeah, so. I went to college with a guy that was from Istanbul and uh, several years ago, he invited me, you know, I'd love to travel internationally and, and he invited me to come uh, visit the city. And, you know, he had some friends that I had met once or twice in New York and, and went there that one time and, and just fell in love with the country. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. The, the beach towns are amazing. The Mediterranean off the coast of Bodrum and Cheshme are, are just wonderful. And, you know, it's just a, it's a very affordable place to live. You know, I rented a three bedroom apartment last summer for less than a, what a studio would cost in my building here. And that was still probably a ripoff. Um, so, you know, it's just an easy place to visit. The food's amazing. It's right on the water. Uh, kind of reminds me of San Francisco a little bit uh, in an amazing part of the world and good airport if you want to travel to any, anywhere else in the region. All right, I'm uh, I'm putting it on the list, and I'm I'm pretty familiar with Bodrum as well. Fantastic, fantastic little um, region right on the uh, Mediterranean. Got a lot of great great towns there. Um, you're based in New York. You know any any specific favorite restaurants of yours that you that you're really looking forward to getting back to? Yeah, I mean I I live right by Scarpetta, and I think they've done an amazing job. Uh, since the pandemic started, it, it basically looks like Saint Tropez out there on on 29th Street and and on Fifth Avenue. Uh, some other ones, uh, Saint Tropez in Soho um, yeah. is is a good one. Uh, the West Village location is also amazing. That whole strip, you know, the Cafe Clooney's. Uh, I was going to Boca Ria a lot during during quarantine. They they were letting people in or sit outside for a while. Great selection of tapas. And then I want to get back to Noda, uh, which I haven't been to in over a year now. One of my favorite sushi places, Noda, uh, just incredible. I think they have a six or eight seat sushi bar. They do two seatings a night. Just a, a great place. One of my favorite uh, omakases in New York. All right, we've got a we've got a good list of uh, places to to, uh, to pencil in now. Appreciate that. Um, you're a, you're you're a pretty tall guy. I, I can imagine you, you've played some sports. Uh, at some point, you know, if 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 you could watch any professional athlete, you know, play live, you know, today, who would it be and, and why? Who would it be and why? That's a tough one. Um, I mean, Jordan was always incredible to watch. You know, I was a much younger uh, kid when when he was sort of in his heyday. I would love yeah. to go sort of see that magic again. <laughs> would love to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, for me, basketball is, you know, is a fantastic sport. The speed of it, the adrenaline, um, you know, tennis is also 
another fantastic sport that I love. Well, you know, would love to uh, would love to see Roger probably play one more time, given you know he he might he might be heading out the door. Um, so you know, I'm looking forward maybe to the U.S. Open. Yeah, coming cannot back. wait for that. Come, yeah, yeah. It's it's always it's always like a double edged sword because it's it's super hot during that time period in August. Um, but you know, it'd definitely be fun to kind of get to a night match and see see some of these guys get after it. Um, and then lastly, you know, as you kind of think about you know overall markets and kind of what's unfolded, like what are your thoughts on some of the things surrounding you know GameStop and AMC? You know, how how have you been? you know, looking at some of these things from the sidelines. This is one of the craziest markets I've ever seen. You know, a lot of it reminds me, you know, and I was, I was younger, but, you know, I was watching the markets back in 2000 and, and a lot of this reminds me of what was happening back then. You know, I think the economic backdrop, if anything, is a little bit worse than it was back then, but the, the euphoria, the speculation, the gambling is at a very similar level where everybody was talking about stocks got in a taxi and it was, well, what are you buying? What do you think about Salesforce? What do you think about, you know, this tech company that doesn't exist anymore? Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a little concerning, you know, obviously uh, any sort of downturn impacts us all, whether or not we're in the markets. So I'm a, I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit concerned about where, where things might be headed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's feeling a little, a uh, little frothy, um, you know, with, with some of these things, the pendulum swings pretty wide on, on both sides of those trades. Um, well, Brad, this has been an incredible conversation. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm glad we had a chance to um, connect. You're obviously building an incredible product over at Nomad Data. Um, wishing you, you know, much success, all the best. And you know, now you're officially part of the alternative data news community. So welcome. Thanks for, for the great questions. Uh, they were all really thoughtful and I look forward to watching the industry grow together. Absolutely. Thanks, Brad. We'll, uh, we'll always be um, connected and looking forward to uh, seeing you in person as well. Yeah, can't wait. Let's do it. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Hey guys, if you found this episode helpful, useful, and you enjoyed the content, you know, make sure to follow us on all the appropriate channels subscribe to the cast and leave a positive review it really helps us continue to grow you know put out amazing content and it helps other people in the industry you know find the platform and the channel as well so that we can continue to grow and keep putting out you know fresh related news and content every day until the next time this is adn providing alternative data news always in all ways